Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and start class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holiday season, a time to remember all that you've done for us coming to earth that we could see you clearly. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us today, that as we study, we can see you clearly today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number two in our new quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the uh, title this week is The Prophetic Gift. <laughs> so the quarterly title and the lesson title are the same this week. Several questions to throw out for, for discussion. What is the gift of prophecy? Is the prophetic gift different than the gift of prophecy? And does someone have to prophesy in order to have the prophetic gift? So what is the gift of prophecy? Is the prophetic gift different than the gift of prophecy? Any thoughts? I don't know that there's actually a right or wrong answer here. I mean, when I hear it, I hear the gift of prophecy as someone who prophesies, and I hear the, the prophetic gift as someone who has the office of a prophet. I mean, that's just how it resonates in my ears. It may not be right, but that's just kind of how I, I hear it. Do you all hear it that way? The gift of prophecy is the ability to prophesy, and the prophetic gift is someone who's a prophet. <laughs> But maybe they're synonyms, actually. Does someone have to, to prophesy in order to have the prophetic gift? No. No, they don't. So what does it mean to be a prophet? In the Eastman's Bible Dictionary, in the uh, Hebrew, there's three words used for prophet. One is, and if anybody can speak, speak Hebrew better than I can pronounce these, you're welcome to correct this, N-A-B-I, Nabi, um, from the root meaning to bubble forth as from a fountain, hence to utter. This Hebrew word is the first and most common generally used form of prophet. In, in, in the time of Samuel, another word, which is R-O-E-H, uh, was seer, began to be used, and it occurred seven times in reference to specifically Samuel as a seer. And then afterwards, another word, Jose, H-O-Z-E-H, also uh, translated into English as seer. And interestingly enough, in one Bible verse, 2 Samuel 24, 11, Excuse me, in uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 29, all three of these words are used in the same verse. Samuel the seer, uh, R-O-E-H, Nathan the prophet, Nabi, and Gad the seer, Jose, all in the same verse. So I wonder why the, the uh, writer decided to make them all with different words to say basically the gift of prophecy. It's interesting. I wonder if there's subtle differences. Uh, Balaam, on the other hand, is referred to as a kozim, which is a diviner. And the, supposedly the Kozum Hebrew word is used only for a false prophet. So the, the prophet proclaimed the message given to him, uh, and the seer beheld the visions of God, according to this Bible dictionary. Thus the prophet was a spokesman for God. He spoke in God's name and by his authority. He is the mouth by which God speaks to men. So um, a prophet then proclaims the message from God, but does not have to have the ability to predict the future. Right? Yes? Yes. Yes, okay. So what then is the difference between a prophet, a teacher, and a preacher? I mean, they are listed as different gifts in the New Testament, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what's the difference? Are preachers spokesmen for God? Yes. Well, if a prophet is a spokesman for God and a preacher is a spokesman for God, what's the difference? Or are the, prof are the preachers prophets? Should we call our pastors prophets? No. Prophet Nixon. <laughs> What's the difference? Any thoughts? I think of a prophet as somebody who has a more direct message from God, like they hear God talking to them or see something in particular, like really see it, you know, like in a vision or something. A more direct communication from God than what a, a person would normally have. Um, more direct communication. So it would have to come through one of the five senses? Auditory, visual, tactile, uh, uh, one of the five senses for a prophet? Dream, or, or dreams. Or dreams. <clears throat> okay, so it would be a dream. Hmm. So thoughts about that? I, I think we're comfortable with that. I think we generally think prophets have some supernatural revelation. It seems like that's the way the Bible used it, hmm. a prophet. Um, I don't know if we'd be comfortable calling all preachers prophets. 
Oh, uh, yeah. You know, unless unless we call some of them, uh, you know. What about some of these preachers that that say God has shown me I should raise them? Unless we call some of them a cosim, right? <laughs> Spokespeople for God? Well, that's the that's the question we're going to talk about today, isn't it? Yeah, um, interesting question, isn't it? Because that's what it says: a spokesperson for God. How about the idea that a prophet, in addition to correcting and reproving sin, which is one of the roles of a prophet, but don't preachers do that too? Right. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. Um, but my thought on the prophet is the prophet is used by God to unfold truth, to help people grow in knowledge, or to reveal new light. Whereas preachers often proclaim light already revealed. Say, and teachers help people educate and understand and be able to, to process through light already revealed. Whereas prophets maybe are, uh, you know, lights or, or unfold new insights, new, new, new wisdom. What do you think? This is a thought. Sounds good. <laughs> Just keep that in mind as we go on through. Okay. What does it mean to be inspired? What does it mean to be inspired? Because we consider prophets inspired, don't we? We say that. What, what does it mean to be inspired? That's such a broad term. I mean, artists are inspired. Mothers are inspired. False know. prophets are inspired. Okay. Source of the inspiration is what makes the difference, isn't it? Oh, excellent point. Excellent point. Yes, inspiration means then something that is... Um, Working upon your heart or mind to motivate you or move you in a certain direction. Would we say that? Something's inspiring us, moving us, uh, giving us some inertia, some energy, some insight. But it doesn't have to be from God, does it? No. no. Yeah, we can be inspired by other people, by a movement, by a, by a cause, by an evil power, or, or by the Holy Spirit. So I guess the source of inspiration is all important. Um. In Sabbath's lesson, the first paragraph, somebody read that for us. All through history, even up to the present, we can find examples of people uttering predictions about the future. In most cases, these things never come true. When they do come true, a number of factors could be involved. Could it be just sheer luck? Maybe the Lord was in it? Or perhaps the enemy of souls was working to deceive as many as he could? Anybody this year get any emails predicting future events besides me? Anybody else? I'm seriously. Hands. Let's see a hand. Somebody got some. Okay, about about a third of the people in here got, got an email. Well, I'm going to share one that I got uh, just to, on this line of predicting future, people doing it all the time. It was a capital letter along the, the email. It said, Priority Report, Martial Law is now only weeks away. Did you all get this one? So I see some heads nodding, yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to read the whole email to you, but it goes on saying that this, this investment banker who has inside knowledge of what's happening in, in Wall Street and the investment firms, uh, that, uh, that he left his, his power broker elite people because the bottom line is that Bush is now expected to introduce martial law on or before September 30, 2008, since that date marks the end of the fiscal year. And it goes on with all this um, very... Um, uh, inflammatory language about what's about to happen, the collapse of the economy, and how um, the, uh, there's going to be war games. And, and this guy's hypothesizing that there's going to be a flu pandemic initiated by um, Fort Detrick created flu pandemic where they, you know, make the vaccines and stuff like that. It's going to cause chaos in the streets and cause Bush to put martial law in by September 30, 2008. Hmm. We'll have to wait and see now. You know, it's over. Yeah. Okay. So. What did I do when I got that email? Delete. Yeah, exactly. Delete. I had to go to my trash bin to find this for for uh, for my for the class today. Exactly. As soon as I got it, it was like delete, <laughs> delete. But this kind of stuff is is sent out to generate hysteria in people. Um, jump to jump to Friday's lesson and somebody read question two in Friday's lesson on the same topic. Question two in Friday's lesson. What about some of the so-called prophets today, those making all sorts of predictions, many of which are reported in the local newspaper? How should we relate to them? What kind of people are they? What kind of predictions do they make? And what can we learn from the contrast between them and the prophets seen in the Bible? Now, do you find the ones reported in the local newspaper as the most dangerous? No. No. How about the ones in the church? How about the ones who have a mission? How about the ones who you can give a donation to and get a tax deduction for? Those guys. And there's somebody I went to school with who has been for 25 years preaching 
economic collapse imminent. Eminent economic collapse. For 25 years, he's been preaching. At any moment, the entire uh, economy of the world is going to collapse. It might be right now. And, but he's been saying it for 25 years. It's about to happen. And you need to give all your money to the mission right now. You need to sell your property and give to the mission right now. You need to, any savings, any retirement, liquidate it now because it's not going to be worth anything. For 25 years, he's been preaching this message to getting, and some people who are susceptible have been liquidating all their assets, assets, their retirement, and have nothing to subsist on anymore. Because they've given it. Because eminently, within weeks, you see, the economy is going to collapse. 25 years. Now, you said something. You can wait and see if it comes. You said if you preach it long enough. <laughs> see, if, if we preach long enough that the economy is going to collapse, eventually what's going to happen? You're going to be right. See, if you preach long enough a certain cataclysmic event, knowing what the Bible teaches, that it's going to happen. But, but is preaching that it's eminent within the next, within the next 30 days, next, next 60 days, it's about to happen, is that what God would have us do? I don't think fear is ever a good motivator for anything. Even quitting smoking is not a good fear. Fear is not a good tactic to use. Well, this particular person I'm talking about is actually uh, uh, quite reputed in our organization. Yeah, but I don't think that's the way that... You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. yeah, we went to school with him. But can we can we apply the same logic to Noah? Look how long he preached. Yeah, he preached. He preached cataclysm for 120 years. Now I don't know if he was saying it's going to happen soon. Well, I, I think that there's a big difference. Noah's saying there's a flood coming, in the context of him building a boat. The building of the boat not complete would tell us what. It's not here yet. It's not, here yet. it's not going to be today, because it's not going to happen until our boat's complete. Now, as far as the record of Noah, after the boat was complete, it wasn't that much longer that it happened, was it? No. I don't know what the time I mean, the, the inference from all the things I've ever read was the completion of the boat was in a fairly close time frame to the time the flood actually came. Back in 1950, Elder Figure, after he was, he was elected conference president, GC president, he, he uh, made a statement for the newspapers that the coming of Christ was imminent. Yes. Yeah, and we, it's been preached since mid-1800s that the coming of Christ is imminent. And you know what? In God's time period, maybe it is imminent. Well, I mean, you know, two, three hundred years is, is like a drop in the bucket to him. So. Some of you have heard of Graham Maxwell. Yeah. He tells about it, uh, his parents were dating at the time that World War I broke out. And the leaders of the church told the people, this is it. This is the world war. This is the final events. Christ is about to come. Uh, woe to those who were with children during this difficult time out of Matthew, remember. Uh, don't marry. Don't give in marriage at this time. Give all that you have to the church and um, avoid you know, finding yourself in this terrible situation as the world unfolds to the second coming of Christ. Pray that your fly not occur on the Sabbath. Yeah, exa- exactly. And so, and so um, Graham tells about how his father... A young man at the time was getting this counsel to, you know, not marry. And his father also read further in the scripture where it said, Occupy till I come. And so he married anyway. And Graham and his brothers are very happy he did. You see? And Graham now is um, 87 years of age. 87 years of age. And has had children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, all of who would not be here today if the warning of World War I. It's about to happen, don't do it. Do you think we do good service to give messages that say, stop living your life, sell all that you have, give it now because tomorrow you won't have a chance? No, I don't. Don't marry today. Don't get married because you don't have a chance. Is that the message God would have? Or is it the message, prepare that Christ is coming soon, be prepared, send, do your work to hasten the day, but anticipate we should occupy till he comes. I think it's maybe also be in the mindset that you might lose it tomorrow. Also, prepare your minds. I mean, 
even though if you don't physically give it, still if your mindset is that, you know, you might have to give it away tomorrow, just be the mindset that it's not. So you're not attached to it so that you're able to walk away from it at any time. If you need to walk away from your earthly possessions, no big deal. You can walk away, but you're going to wait until the evidences around you are such that it is time to walk away or it's time to, to donate or give, or you have some direct revelation from God in your particular cause that that's his action for your life. Rather than letting a um, dynamic speaker move you emotionally and motivate you with fear and panic to give away your possessions. Is there a difference? Mm -hmm. How should we handle this type of preaching? Like Christians. Which means? Love them. Love them. I like the saying, plan as if you're going to live forever. Live as though you're going to die today. (coughs) So what then is the primary purpose of Bible prophecy? We're talking about the prophetic gift. What is its primary purpose? Is the primary purpose so that people can accurately predict the future? No. No. What is the purpose of Bible prophecy? I've heard Graham Maxwell talk before about how it's not so much that we understand now what's going to happen then, but once it happens, we look back and see that God knew that it was going to happen. Okay, so one purpose, and there can be more than one purpose, can't there? Okay. One purpose is to instill confidence or faith in the believers. As events unfold, we can see that God foreknew these events and God was not taken by surprise and all things are working out according to God's plan. So our confidence and faith is enhanced. We're not frightened. We're not terrified as events are unfolding because we see that God uh, knew. Okay. That's one, one purpose. Any other purpose? And I like that purpose. And it's a very important purpose. I stimulate conversation which builds relationships so that we can understand more fully at the time who we're dealing with. Okay, and stimulate conversations. Can we also say that the Bible prophecy is there to inspire hope? Yes. Would you say Bible prophecy is there to, to inspire hope? That we have, a, we have God predicting that there will be an end of sin. That's a prophecy, isn't there? The future has already been. That we will have eternal life. That he is going to come again. Aren't these all prophecies? Mm-hmm. Okay, does that inspire hope? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so part of prophecy is to inspire hope. Is part of prophecy, though, to help the believer plan how we will handle events as they unfold. For instance, Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, uh, cataclysmic events and all these things, and false false Christ in diverse places, and all this kind of stuff that's going to happen at the end. And he says this phrase, these are the beginning of the labor pains. Is that a prophecy? So that when troublesome times come, think about a woman going to labor. And she doesn't know she's pregnant. Now, those of you who've been through labor, would it have been more difficult if you had no idea you were pregnant? All you knew is that you were going through this terrible pain, but you didn't know why. Would that have been harder to deal with? Yes, no? Yes. Yes, yes it'd been terrible. Would you have been like, terrified you're, you're about to die or something if you didn't know you were pregnant? Yeah, those who haven't had the privilege of Bible prophecy, when troublesome times break upon the world, they won't know what's happening. They won't have a clue. Not that we're accurately predicting the future with the prophecy, but we have a perspective, we have a framework to operate within that we understand generally what's happening, and we have confidence and courage that we're not terrified. Doesn't that give us a a foundation to handle the things as they unfold upon us? Yeah, yes? Isn't part of prophecy not having anything to do with prediction of future, but more to do with revelation about God and his character. Thoughts about that? Amen. God's perspective on things is really important to, I mean, to get us out of our mindset and more into his mindset. Let's, uh, with that thought in mind, let's jump up to my notes here. Let's jump up to Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson points out Moses is the first named prophet over Israel. Yet it made a distinction, yet, yet, the, yet God makes a distinction between Moses and other prophets. Does anybody tell me what that distinction is? He said, with Moses I spoke to him face to face. There you go. And that's found in Numbers 12, 
verses 1 through 8. We won't read it all right now. Just read the, the last portion as he was confronting Miriam and, and Aaron over their questioning of Moses' right to lead. He says, um, listen to my words. This is God speaking. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Think that through for a minute. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Yeah, and it didn't happen just in declaration. Do you remember how many times in the Bible it described that um, all the children of Israel would come to the, the opening of their own tents, stand there, and Moses would walk into the, to the sanctuary there, and the glory of the Lord would come down and would meet with Moses right there, right at the, the opening of, and, and talk to Moses face to face. Now, imagine, imagine, guys, we're a church. We all stand up for the doxology. Then we have hushed tones as the pastor walks down to the front, up on the pulpit, and we see the glory of the Lord come down, and he talks to the pastor face to face. The pastor turns back from that conversation. His face is radiating this light off his face. Do you think we'd listen to what he has to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is Moses coming back from, from talking to God. I mean, his face is radiating this glory, and he speaks. You think he spoke with some authority? Yeah, yeah. This. And yet they didn't listen. No, would we be really be any different? I think we'd listen. Doesn't mean we'd obey. <laughs> Doesn't mean we take it. It's like I'm. I'm curious. I want to know what he's got to say. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Um, and then it talks about Abraham also. Abraham being a prophet of God, and and it sets Abraham. The Bible sets Abraham and Moses apart in some special way. Does anybody know? They're, they're called something special in the Bible. Friends of God. Friends of God. That's exactly right. In Isaiah 41.8 it says, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Abraham was God's friend. And then in Exodus 33.11, the Lord would speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Exodus 33.11. So both Abraham and Moses were called friends of God. question to you is, why might that be? What distinguishes someone as a friend. Did you know them so well? Can you know somebody really well, really, really well, truly know them and be their enemy? No. No? no? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. We know Lucifer. So. Did Lucifer know God really, really well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Did Delilah know Samson really, really well? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, she knew him. In the biblical sense. <laughs> she did and, and she knew him really well she betrayed him there's lots of examples of knowing someone really well trustworthiness going both directions is a friend someone who genuinely cares about the other more than they care about themselves yes is interested in the other person their problems their concerns shares in their joys works to use their energy to protect that other person is that what a friend is yeah so what is it about Moses and Abraham, they both did something recorded in Scripture in their relationship with God that I'm not sure anybody else has been recorded as doing. What did they do? Protect the character of God by saying, I will destroy me. Yeah. Of willing to lay down their own life. Or the life of the loved ones. Yeah, I, like, I like it. I like it very much. Specifically, though, they both argued with God. Yeah. Didn't they both argue with him? <clears throat> they didn't take the approach that you see on the bumper stickers. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That, that, that's a non-thinking slave mentality. Well, if the master said it, we don't ask questions, we do it. No, both Moses and Abraham argued with God. Genesis 18, 23-25, as uh, God is on his way to, to destroy Sodom, it says, The men turned away, meaning the two angels that were with uh, God, and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Would you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the ruler of all the earth do what is right? Now, how many of you would speak to God like that? And do you notice the point of his argument, though? How can you do it, Lord? Don't you know what people will say about you? You are righteous. You are holy. You are good. If you destroyed 50 good people, even though the whole city is wicked, if you destroyed 50 good people, what would people say about you, Lord? You can't do it. 
Not the good God that I know. That's not you. And so Abraham argues, as you said, because he was passionate for God's reputation and what people would think about God. What about Moses? Moses in Exodus 32, 9-12. It says, God speaking, I have seen the people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make a great nation out of you. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring your people to disaster. So what was, what was Moses concerned about here? You notice both Moses and Abraham argued with God because from their perspective, what God was about to do would hurt his reputation on earth. Now, that's friendship. Now, Jesus has invited us, John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends because servants don't, don't understand their master's business. That's exactly right. What would be one of the highest priorities of a friend of God? Wouldn't it be revealing the truth about him? So, let me ask you this question. What would you prefer to be? Would you prefer to be known as a prophet of God or a friend of God? Well, maybe God's friends, maybe friends of God are also prophets because his friends will speak of him what is right. Isn't that true? If they're really his friends, won't they speak of him what is right? And would they be able to speak of him what is right if they didn't have enlightenment from the Spirit to change their hearts to know him? No. Um, might you be a prophet of God? Yes. Revelation 7. Will, will God have prophets on the earth at the end of time, before yes. he comes again? Yes. Revelation 7, 1 through 3. Somebody read that for us. After this, I saw four angels standing at the corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Who who are they sealing here? God. The servants of God. Say that again. God's the, servants. The servants of God. Now the question is, in the Bible, who are the servants of God? Anybody ever looked that phrase up? Just the servants of God. Have you looked that up? Well, somebody read Revelation ten seven. Revelation 10. Because you notice that God is waiting for something. The four angels are holding back the four winds, waiting for a time uh, for them to let loose. And all this troublesome stuff's going to happen. And they're waiting for the seal of God to be sealed in the foreheads of his servants. And the seal is, can anybody tell me common language what that means? Being so settled. See, the forehead is where you do your thinking. It's where you do your reasoning. It's the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. It's being so settled into the truth about God, both intellectually and spiritually, that nothing can move you from it. You are settled. You're beyond movement. Character is sealed. Godlike, Christ-like. That's what it means to be sealed. He's waiting for this group, this group called the servants, to be sealed. And then the four winds loosen. So that's what God is waiting for. But who is this group, the servants? So somebody read Revelation 10.7. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Well, this says that, that the mystery of God will be accomplished as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Have you looked that phrase up? It's like over 25 times throughout the whole Bible, this phrase, the servants, the prophets, the servants, the prophets, his servants, the prophets, his servants, the prophets, over and over again. Could this be referring in Revelation 7 that there's a seal coming upon his servants and this group of people will have the gift of prophecy. Could it be suggesting that? 
Well, does it make sense that God would want a group of people on earth that have the prophetic vision, that have the prophetic understanding of the origins of sin in heaven, the great controversy, the purpose of the creation of the earth, the fall of mankind, the purpose of the incarnation, what Christ accomplished, seeing through to the great consummation and how things will finally be uh, resolved in the end? Will God want a people on earth that will witness for him, through which, if you read the context of chapter 7, a great multitude of every nation, kindred, tribe, and people are saved. Yes? Having the pro prophetic perspective is really important, but I think it's even more important that you're obedient. And I think that's what they're referring to here. The prophets were obedient. The servants of God are, are those who are obedient to him. That, that's implied in, in the service or servant word. In the context of what? Abraham said to God, you will do what is right. I think those who are his friends, servants, will do and say what is right about God. Let's talk about the obedience since you brought it up. Let's talk about it. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 1. God is berating the children of Israel. Now, he berates Israel frequently through the Old Testament for idolatry, fornication, rebelliousness, Stubbornness. We, we read the text a moment ago. But in Isaiah 1, he's berating the people specifically for burnt offerings, feast, keeping the feast days, praying to him, coming to temple, observing the sanctuary holidays, and he's on their case for it. For obeying him. For obeying him. For the wrong reason. Wait, well, wait a minute. The issue is one of obedience. When Christ came to earth... If you look at the children of Israel, why did Christ come to earth when he came to earth? I mean, the promised Messiah was given right there in Eden after the fall. Eve began looking to her children for the Messiah. She was wanting it right then. Okay? And through history, they were looking for the promised Messiah. But it was 4,000 years later, at least, that the Messiah comes. According to the record that we have, the historical record, the biblical record, this was the first time in history, if you look at the history of children of Israel, that God had a people on earth who appeared to be obedient. They were no longer in idolatry. They were no longer fornicating. They were keeping the blueprint. They were double tithe payers. They were sanctuary observers. They were Sabbath keepers. Uh, they, they'd strained the gnats out of their food not to eat anything wrong. I mean, everything that he did, these were obedient people. Yet, when he came, the one who gave them all this, they hated him and they killed him. Now, I'm not ditzing the idea of obedience. I'm putting down, though, unenlightened obedience. Obedience without proper perspective, without proper understanding, without proper knowledge of God, leads us to be his enemies. Satan doesn't care if we obey the rules. He doesn't care if we keep the Sabbath, pay our tithe, go to church, pray every day. He doesn't care if we do those things. In fact, we can be some of the best tools that Satan has. The best weapons he has on this earth are people in the church who live the, the so-called Christian life. Look at who did more for Satan than those leaders in Christ's day. They were his agents for killing the Messiah. What is it that separates someone from this genuine obedience that God wants? Well, in the Greek, the word translated, often translated obedience, is the word hypoakue. Hypo means under, like hypoglycemic, hypotensive, hypo, uh, you know, low blood sugar, low blood pressure. Uh, and acue, we get words like acoustic, acoustical. It means to listen. And the hypoacue means a humble willingness to listen, to be instructed, to have a heart that will follow instructions. And so there's actually a, a servant who was called the hypoacue. And his job was to sit at the gate and wait for the master's voice. When he heard the master's voice coming, he would get up and open the gate for the master to ride into the property or, or the estate. That was his job. A humble willingness to listen. A humble willingness to follow. So if you had an obedient servant, as soon as he heard the master's voice, what does he do? He jumps up and goes to the gate or to the door to open it. How about if the humidity had swollen the wood and it stuck and he couldn't get it open? Is he a disobedient servant? But he's pulling with all his might. Is he? No. no. It's not about performance. Obedience is not about performance. It's about willingness of the heart to do as God instructed, listening for his voice and following where he leads. That's what genuine obedience is about. And so we have these three levels of obedience we've talked about before. Level one, 
When I was a kid, my mom had a rule I had to brush my teeth. And if I did, not get punished. So I brushed because I didn't want to get punished. <coughs> now, imagine if today I'm still brushing my teeth because I'm afraid my mom would come over and punish me. <laughs> would, she be bra- would she be proud of me? As I got older, uh, I grew to the point mom says, I hate it when, when I have to threaten you to punish you to get you to do anything. It just breaks my heart that you won't do something because you love me. Oh, well, I touched me. So mom never had to threaten me to brush my teeth again. What would it be like if today I brushed my teeth just because I don't want to hurt my mom? Mm-hmm. Would she be proud of me? Or would she want me to eventually grow up and understand the reason she had the rule to brush my teeth because it makes sense to me and I'm in agreement with her? See, so many Christians are they're obedient. Got his rules? You break his rules? Well, he's going to punish. We don't want to get punished, so we obey. That's not obedience that God wants. There's so many others that have grown to the point, well, I love God, and you know, I don't murder and steal, rape and pillage, because it hurts God. I don't want to hurt him. It, it disappoints him. But the real reason God is so upset about all these things is because when we act in such ways, it destroys his creatures, those he loves. It sears the conscience, warps the reason, destroys the image of God within us, and misrepresents him, leading others to lose their souls as well. This is why God hates it. And those of us who become his friends understand. We don't want to participate in that. It's destructive. It makes no sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. Lord, I agree with you. Your ways are the ways of life. I'm going to follow you because it makes sense. Yes, and I think the, the, the prophetic gift, those who are his servants who have this gift of prophecy, have come to understand God, have become his friends, understand the reasons why he does things, the issues in the war that began in heaven, and how those issues are being played out in every phase of our life today, and are able to stand clearly and articulately and represent God faithfully. I think that's what it's about at the end. Is there other Bible passages that would tell us that God will have his prophets on the earth at the end. Joel. Joel, which we also find quoted in Acts. That's exactly right. Acts 2, 17, 18, also in Joel. The same passage is quoted both from the Old Testament into the New. It says, In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men, notice, on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. My servants will prophesy. Hmm. Does that mean in the sense that they will speak for me? That's exactly what I think it means that when you put it together with the Revelation 7 text, that these are a group of people who when the things break loose in this world, when the cataclysmic events start happening, God will have a group of people who are already settled before that. Understand this. And they stand up with clarity and explain the truth of the great controversy. Explain what's really happened. Explain that God is not the source of evil. That God is not sending hurricanes to punish homosexuals in New Orleans. This is a lie. Okay? This is coming out from this evil one himself. And we have biblical evidence to show that. Remember when the hedge of protection, the four winds holding back the four winds of, the four angels holding back the four winds of strife around Job were removed? A storm came and killed his kids. That storm did not come from God. It came when the evil one was no longer restrained. And God is loosening his grip right now. It's not gone yet. He's still got the, he's still got hold, 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 but the grip is loosening. And there's a purpose for this. Why would God allow this to happen? Because people live in complacency. People live with their minds thinking nothing about their next meal, nothing more than their next meal, nothing more than their next television program, nothing more than the next bet they're going to make, or whatever it might be. They don't think about eternal realities. And what is it that shakes people out of the complacency of the day-to-day life? Problems. Cataclysmic, cataclysmic events cause people to step back and say, whoa, what's really going on here? And God allows the winds to loosen, but he's not going to allow the winds to loosen until he has a people who can give the truth to those who finally wake up and say, what's going on? If there's no one to give that message, God holds in mercy, holds, 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 waiting for a people ready to give the message so that when the people ask, we can lead them into eternal life. That's what I think he's describing in Revelation 7. Yes. So you're saying that when we read the prophecies that at the end of time there'll be increased famines and storms and pestilence and all that, it's not sent from God, it's sent from Satan. That's exactly 
That's exactly what, what the I Believe Inspiration teaches, no question about it. And I can give you some references after class um, where one of the founders of our church said the exact same thing. He explicitly says it, that the plagues of God do not come out directly from God, but they come out in this way. That he no longer gives his agencies to restrain Satan and his forces, and he has given sway over nature, land, and sea. And Satan then has authority to cause this and wreak this havoc. That's how it comes out from God in the end. Just like it did in the book of Job. So we have scripture evidence to demonstrate that's how it happens. When Satan was no longer restrained, and notice, this is very important to notice. In the book of Job, when God put Job in Satan's hands, did God restrict Satan's activities other than death? No. no. In other words, Satan was free if Satan wanted to. Once he was in, Job was in Satan's hands, Satan was free to bless Job. God didn't restrict that, did he? No. You can only do him harm, you can't bless him. See, Satan could have had Job had more wealth. He could have had the countries around proclaim him king and, and give him all types of adoration and fame. Couldn't Satan have done that? And if Satan had thought that would have been the, the best course to get him to curse God, that's exactly what he would have done. My point being is, though Satan begins showing his nature and character, he's the destroyer. God did not require of Satan that Satan act in the way he did. He just loosed him to have freedom other than taking his life. Yes? Before we sort of go past this uh, discussion we're having about obedience, I think when you refer to obedience, you can also be referring to obedience in, in overall general sense, as in, if you're a friend of someone, as Moses was a friend of God, Abraham was a friend of God, you obey the principles of friendship. You are, you are truly a friend, not a betrayer like, like these others that you mentioned. And I just wanted to mention that uh, Elder Kuhn, Roger Kuhn, mentioned one, once in one of his sermons that when he was actually in gathering, in one of the African cities that he was in um, way back when, uh, when he when he solicited an Arab or a, a Muslim, he wouldn't necessarily ask them if they were a friend of God, but he would refer to them as a friend of Abraham. I'm not friend of Abraham, not friend of God, but. In other words, that's a that's a high praise and a high compliment to anyone, and especially in Islam, that they are referred to as a friend of Abraham. And of course, the, the, the correlation obviously is that they are then also a friend of God, and you can match your friendship with God or with Abraham with theirs. Yeah, and Christ said, um, if you really were Abraham's children, you would. Love me. You would recognize me as the Savior. But you're not of your father, Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. devil. (laughs) So calling someone a friend of Abraham or a descendant of Abraham, if you're really in the biblical sense a descendant of Abraham, according to Paul, all those who accept Christ are descendants of Abraham. So if if they're not accepting Christ as their Savior, you see... But it's a tool. It's a tool to find out the intent of the heart. So let's jump back to Sabbath's lesson. And somebody read the last paragraph in Scripture. In Scripture's individuals whom God endowed with the gift of prophecy were people who walked with God. Not that they were sinless, but they strove to live in harmony with God's revealed will. They had a personal relationship with God, and in that context, the Lord was able to use them in a special way. Let's talk about that business right there. They walked with God, not that they were sinless. What do you think that implies when we when we think of prophets and deal with prophets? How do you use that? Do you, or do you all believe prophets are sinless? No. No. Okay, so they're sinners too. So what does it mean then when we deal with a prophet in the writings of a prophet? <clears throat> Can prophets make mistakes? Can prophets be wrong? Yes. I heard one yes. There's a lot of, uh, I am not sure I want to go down this trail look. (laughs) And because they're human, couldn't there be a mix of, like, the interpretation could be slightly different, like, not skewed necessarily, but 
Well, let's uh, let's go down that uh, discussion and let's see if there's biblical evidence to help us with this. Um, first off, some questions. If if prophets are not perfect, does that mean that everything they say or do is correct? Is everything a prophet says or does correct? Do genuine prophets from God ever not only make mistakes but speak falsehoods? Do we have a biblical record of that? Yes, the young prophet and the old. The young prophet and the old prophet and kings. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's one example. But what about Peter? Did Peter have the gift? Would he be considered not only an apostle but also a prophet? Did he have the gift of prophecy? Anybody uncomfortable with that idea? No. No, everybody, everybody agrees. After his conversion, after his reinstatement by Christ, what did Peter do when it came to dealing with Gentiles? He was a hypocrite. Did he take the right course of action for policy in the church? No. Policy, yes. Did Paul had to confront him openly because he was wrong? Yes. What would have happened in the church had Paul not confronted Peter and Peter's example was used for church um, policy? What would have happened in the church? Would the church have gone down the path God had intended? No. But Peter was a prophet, wasn't he? Should we just listen to Peter because he's a prophet? Or should someone, could, could it, would it have been okay for someone other than Paul to say, Peter, you're wrong on this issue, buddy? Yes. Or would only someone who else has been recognized as a prophetic gift be able to do that? How about in our church today? Can someone in the church today who is thinking and reasoning say, hey, wait a minute, the, the prophet's wrong on this? Or are we not allowed to ask those questions? Say, hey, now you're, you know, you're a hypocrite. Now you've gone off the reservation. Yes. How do you know then when a prophet is speaking ex cathedra, as we would say in Catholicism, and he's speaking for God as opposed to speaking on their own terms? Isn't that a great question? Isn't that a great question? Did Paul give us some insight in Romans chapter 14 when he said, every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind? Now, if a prophet says something and it makes no sense to you, whatever, you're not really even sure it's true. You're not even convinced. But, hey, it came from the prophets, so I better do it. Are you, is your character being matured? Are you growing in Christ-like grace? If you're just doing this, this obedience like Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet said we do this stuff, we do it. We don't know why we're doing it, we're just going to do it. Is that what God wants from us? He says, come let us reason together. Come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, but white like wool. Or Hebrews chapter 5, 14. The mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Is, is God asking of us that the prophets are not to do our thinking for us? Hey, the prophets are there to share truth. But then you have to take that truth individually and process it through with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit in your own heart and mind before it transforms your heart. Is that true? Yes. I guess the concern is we take something that a prophet has said as being from God. Yeah. And challenging what this is from God. Uh, because what we've defined, we've, we've kind of bounced around in our understanding of what we see prophets and, the, and, the, and the, the role of prophet. And I'm not really sure, still in my own mind, if just because you prophesy once, you are now in the you're categorized as a prophet. As Peter, for instance, you can say, yes, he prophesied, or Paul, yes, he prophesied. Or, or, would they be considered prophets then? Um, they also wrote books of Scripture. They were, <coughs> and, and the Bible says only those who are moved by the Spirit write the Scriptures. But there are, there are several people who wrote books in the Old Testament who are not considered prophets. And so I, I, the, the distinction is not clear. And then when we have somebody who is defined by the Bible as a prophet, how do we then understand how to interpret their writings? Do we challenge them because of their being fallible in other areas of their life, saying, well, therefore, we can't really trust their writings? See, that that's... Somebody had a comment? Uh, doesn't God expect us to, to test him and to challenge to challenge him? I mean, he, he's armed with the truth. The Does, truth is not going to... Can the truth... Stand up to, uh, go ahead. You're thinking about to say what I was going to say. Stand up to any assault on it. Because it's truth. Yes, in fact, hasn't somebody written once, um, the truth can stand to be investigated? Mm -hmm. It loses nothing by close investigation? Mm -hmm. So would God prefer us to take an approach 
It's written by a prophet. Accept it. Don't ask questions. Don't investigate and don't think because a prophet wrote it. Or to take the approach, it's written by a prophet, but we've got to think this through for ourselves. Let's ask questions. Let's investigate and let's search it out. Which pref- method do you think God would prefer us to take? Thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that we... Th- I mean, listen, where would we be without, without the Bible? Okay? The, the process is challenging and the consequence, the conclusion you should come to. There's some people that would challenge prophecy or prophets may come to a conclusion that's opposite what the prophet was intending. So the process of saying, I'm going to challenge this, I'm going to investigate, uh, is, not a, is not problematic. The problem is when you say at the end of your process, you say, well, I disagree. Because of my reasoning process, I come to a different conclusion than this prophet. Um, two things. One, shouldn't that have been exactly what everyone came to when it came to Peter's dealing with the Gentiles? That every Christian should have thought through that and gone, I come to a different conclusion than Peter on this matter. And he was a prophet, an apostle. And it should have been kind of wrong, because he was wrong. He wasn't speaking for God at, at that time. Yes, but do you think that everyone uh, recognized that immediately, that he wasn't speaking for God? Or do you think because he held the prophetic role, that what happens when somebody gets in the prophetic role, and they begin to um, suggest or act in... And remember, this was not just a personal matter here. He was dealing with religious leaders, suggesting how we as an organization, they as an organization, deal with Gentiles. I mean, it was a, it was a religious matter, an organizational, structural, political, um, religious matter that he was dealing with. Do you don't think that, uh, that when we have prophets amongst us, that many people are tempted to say, well, if the prophet thinks this is the way, who might I question? If the prophet says, the Lord has shown me... How many, how many stop there and do that? How many stop and go, oh, well, they didn't say Simon says, so it doesn't count. They didn't say the Lord has shown me, it doesn't count. Uh, most defer, once they accept the person's got the gift of prophecy, they'll challenge, I'm going to check the Bible test of the prophet, okay, yep, that's the gift of prophecy, that's a prophet. And once that happens, how many just turn their thinking over to the prophet? The prophet says it, I can't question because they've got prophecy, I don't. Develop tenure. I mean, does that not happen? And my point is that I think that's a danger. That God does not want us to surrender our thinking to the prophet. He wants us to hear the prophet as his voice, but even when God speaks, even when God himself speaks, does God want us to, God said it, I believe it, that settles, don't think, or does God want us to say, no, Lord, wait a minute, like Abraham, hey, I'm on my way to destroy Sodom. That's an inspired source right there. Okay? That's from the, that's from the man himself. And what did Abraham do? Wait a second, I've got a few questions here. I got a few questions. Shouldn't the Lord do what's right? Hold on. Or do we take the approach? Well, if it comes from an inspired source, we have no right to ask questions. We can't challenge that. Abraham challenged it. Moses challenged it. Coming directly from God. Yes. I think we need to keep in mind that, that you are intensely promoting the whole idea of being. A, uh, a Protestant in the ultimate sense of the word. I mean, you, we're, in other words, if you, if you talk to a Catholic, you know, somebody who's just raised as a Catholic and has always been taught, you know, even all the way through their schools, they'll tell you that those who can interpret Scripture are the, are the clergy. They are the laity. In other words, you. I, I spoke to a woman one time about one of these things, and she said it's not in my jurisdiction. You know. Yes, and what and what does that result happening? Blind, blind leading the blind. And it also leads to to um, a person doubting and cherishing the fact that they doubt to the point of being um, what's the word? Not a. Um, she starts with an A. Agnostic. 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 Agnostic in the extreme. So, so let's just think this through parents. Parents, you have children. When your children are small, they have limited capacities to truly understand what you tell them. And so there's often a parent-child di- dynamic in which parents give instruction. Children may ask questions, but their questions are often from an unruly and somewhat self-centered heart when they're small. Yes? And so parents will often use somewhat of an authoritarian tone and direct. Is that how you want your adult children to relate to you? Do you want them to continue on that path and as adults 
My mom said it. I don't ask questions when mom speaks. I just do what she says. My mom says, yes, I should do that. <laughs> but she didn't mean it. She was kidding. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but she would tell you if, if she was serious, I wouldn't be teaching this class, would I, mom? That's true. Because she didn't teach me this. I was raised in an organization that many of you were raised in, in which we didn't ask questions. In which there was an arbitrary God who inflicted punishment. And if you have faith, you just believe it because he says so. I was raised in that organization. And, and think about what God wants from his... He said right in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. Or the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, and the Holy Spirit has his way in our life. We develop certain traits of character. Well, yes, the, the kindness, the, the mercy, the gentleness, the meekness, the love. But the last, self-governance self or self-control. Who, who does that sound like is in control of the individual? The individual is. The individual is in control. We're not puppets controlled by God. We're not slaves saying, hey, I don't think God said it. We just do it. He's the one directing our actions because we're just at his command. That is not what God wants because love cannot exist in an atmosphere like that. God wants a universe filled with free, genuinely free, sentient beings who value him, his methods and principles, and intelligently, willfully, freely follow his methods in living their life. They think for themselves, and when something comes up, they ask questions. Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense to me, Lord. How can the Lord of all the earth go and kill 50 righteous with the wicked? Lord, I, I know you. That's not like you. Lord, that doesn't make sense to me. How can you wipe out all these people you just delivered and have people think you just brought them out here to kill you? That's not like you, Lord. That is what God is wanting. So, does God want people today who are willing to ask questions, even if it comes from an inspired source? Sure he does. So then that does beg the question that I think still remains unanswered that was raised. How do we know when a prophet is speaking for God or when he's speaking of his own? Paul, actually in one place in the New Testament, says, I have no direction from God on this, but one who is wise in these matters says to do such and such about relations. Remember? When Paul there clarifies and lets you know, hey, this is my opinion as one who knows the Lord and is wise, but I don't have an instruction from the Lord on this. There's a place the Bible says that. Are we to think for ourselves, ask questions, reason it out? Absolutely. How much more so when it comes from the human teacher here in class or your preacher from the pulpit? How often do they actually welcome questioning, though? Because Christ, well, our God welcomes questioning, but most, like, at least, I don't how, know. How often do you welcome your mind to question? Oh, I, I'm bad, I know. But <laughs> no, you're not bad. If you question, see, it's not what other people think. There's a, I'm going to tell you frankly. The majority of religious leaders in the world don't want their prisoners thinking. They don't want them asking questions. They want, to be, they want a, a power over system where they can... I mean, what was the greatest threat to the Catholic Church when Martin Luther started his... It wasn't the 95 Thesis he tacked to the wall. That was not the threat. It was when he translated the Bible into German. That was a threat. That terrified the Catholic Church. They did absolutely not want that Bible in, English, in, in the language of the people, in the German. Why? Because they controlled the word, they controlled what it meant, they told people the way to salvation, they controlled the minds. God wants us free to think for ourselves, to reason for ourselves. Okay, in, in closing, we've got a couple of minutes left. In Sunday's lesson, it talks about how God used Abraham and patriarchs who were not perfect, and, and filling along this line of, of God using imperfection, I just wanted to list some other people in the Bible God used who had problems. I'm going to just run down this list and... and Bring it home to where we live today and imagine these people are your elders and pastors in your church. Noah had a drinking problem. Isaac refused to follow God's revealed will, if you remember, and wanted to give the blessing to Esau instead of um, the, the younger. Rebecca was a deceiver. Jacob was a deceiver and polygamist. Judah had a child with his daughter-in-law, who he thought was a prostitute. Reuben had an affair with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Aaron built a golden calf and led the people into idolatry uh, and failed to discipline his sons properly. Eli and Samuel were both poor fathers who failed to discipline their sons. David was a man of blood, adulterer, murderer, polygamist. Solomon was a mega-polygamist, built temples to false gods and sacrificed his son to Moloch. Jonah was a racist. The twelve apostles were arrogant, proud, and constantly strove for supremacy. Martin Luther, in more modern times, was a racist and alcoholic. But yet, we are told, was used by God. 
How would you like these people as your church leadership? <laughs> How do we deal with people when we find out that they have some sin in their life? You realize that they're just like you. And how, what does this tell us about God when we read this list? See, Satan uses this idea because every one of us has sin in our lives. And Satan comes to you and he tells you, hey, you messed up there. You did this here. You've got that problem there. You can't be used from God. Don't even try to offer your services. God can't use you. And thus the church is still hungering for the people it needs to take this truth out. God can use every person in this room. The only thing that matters is whether we're genuinely willing to open the heart to God and follow in that healing path that he leads. You notice every one of those people that I listed had problems, but they all were willing to be corrected and grow and transform over time as they walked with the Lord. None of them shut the heart to God. Even though they had problems, they were like patients with symptoms and sick, but they stayed with the physician and slowly they got well. And the symptoms went away. That's what God is looking for. Opening the heart, trusting Him, and following His prescription, transforming the heart. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you use us imperfect beings because if you didn't use sinners, you, you wouldn't have anybody to use. And we are sinners, Lord, and we recognize our great need of you. We thank you that you have actually privileged us with the right to think for ourselves. You have not demanded we be mindless robots, but that you want beings who genuinely love you, who serve you freely from the heart which means we must know you and understand you for ourselves. And so we ask for your spirit to enlighten our minds, to free us from biases and prejudices and fears and and false ideas that would keep us from thinking. Enlighten us to be able to discern the right from the wrong and know how to follow the truth that leads us back to you. And then use us to be witnesses in this world that we can take this message about you to lighten this world so that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And Happy New Year!